Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to be Human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. And we're on to episode number 163, The Female Gender in Writing. And I know whenever it appears that you're taking a side with one thing or another these days, somehow it'll be a problem for folks. So I'll probably get email. What about all the men? Well, hey, I'm a man, and I like a lot of men writers, too. But uh, I don't really have the same interest like the show will show uh, in, in the males as they are the females. They're a lot more interesting, maybe just because I'm a guy and maybe just because I'm a straight guy. I don't know. Maybe somebody will have a podcast show one day and they'll do a bunch of men shows about male writers and, and they'll discard the women writers. Fine. But that's how this is working today. So I just want to let you know that just in case you were wondering. All right. So I'm going to pick a number of writers out through the centuries. Just to point out interesting things about uh, women in writing, okay? Now, I'm, I'm not terribly interested in any sort of feminism, even though uh, I'll mention that in, in case of some of these writers that had a real, real interest in that or a writing ability of that or even just espousing that, even back in the 1700s, we had a few. And that's fine. I don't mind mentioning that. That's really what their cause was. or In some cases, that's what some of their motivations were. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. It doesn't mean, though, that's really the agenda of the show. It's really more about just the creative aspect of a woman in writing. I mean, if you think about it, in many instances, uh, we don't get a lot of information from male writers about women, unless they're some heroine in, in distress or they're writing about their mother or something. We don't really get all the facets that, that make them interesting, and that's why it's better to sometimes get that just from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak. And we'll get that from the women in, in their writing itself and maybe learn a little bit about their lives. I, I think that's a lot more interesting. I mean, they represent literally half of the world, so it makes no sense to, to have them cloaked in some kind of mystery or something. And that, sometimes that's a real problem in terms of trying to understand who they are and what they're writing about or even the the fact that they're writing at all. And that's really a, a case here. We'll, we'll notice here that we have a, a number of writers that they felt to some degree or another that even had to disguise their gender when they were writing and give themselves different names, masculine names, just so they felt that their writing would be taken more seriously. It, it's unfortunate that some of them had to go that far, but that's what was felt. Not all of them did that or all of them felt that way. But there was enough that you know you have to you have to wonder about you know what they were going through and, and some of the things that was you know going on maybe even in some of their personal lives. Now I know this is going to sound unusual, but unless you get to the really like 21st century or something, somebody like uh, you know J.K. Rowling, one of the few female writers that we can really mention, and I'm actually not mentioning her in this show because we'll have another show uh, just about 
her and her writing uh, early next year. But she's a, an example of something different that I'm going to mention here, and that is, and this is ironic, men, uh, it could be from the 1700s onward, they could be in a situation where they were uh, they were down and out, maybe thrown out from their family, poor, but Edgar Allan Poe is one example of one, and there are others, um, and still can make a name for themselves from writing and, and go from there. Where women always had a particularly difficult situation, you'll notice, and it's not a coincidence, like I said, other than J.K. Rowling and maybe a, a few that you'll find in the, the last 50 to 60 years, for the last like 10 centuries, women, they had to be attached. I mean, these are women writers we're talking about. They had to be attached to more well-off families, uh, often uh, with uh, parents that were already very educated or got them very educated. And they often knew many uh, either famous people or, or people of wealth. It just seemed like they were from the upper crust, and that's how they were able to, you know, even get a chance to write and 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 thrust themselves onto the literary world. Because you remember, when you got to a certain age back, even even 150 years ago, they were like, "You're 16. You're still not married. What the hell's going on?" I mean, really, it's just. They were, you were expected to pump out babies and make pancakes or something. So um, imagine when you're telling somebody, listen, I got, I got a novel to do, and I'll go check out the other stuff later, okay? It's probably an interesting thing to hear, and people looking at it, are like, what? I don't think they questioned the people as much when they came from the upper class uh, estates and mansions and money and, and power and influence. Many of these people came from there. So in many ways, that insulated them to a certain degree. Not perfectly. You still had a, a society that was very, um, I guess you could say, uh, male-dominated and, and less uh, uh, women-friendly. You know, um, So that didn't change. But they had a few more weapons in their belt, so to speak, than the average person. You're not going to find very many examples of women who were poor with six kids and somehow they became a novelist and made a name for themselves. There's just very, very few examples of that. I can't even find one, other than, like I said, one from the last 50, 60 years ago. Otherwise, I really can't even find any, even in the last 100 years. It's just really that difficult. So it's just a common thread that I noticed that runs through all that. This is not to say that, you know, somehow women were handicapped, they needed this, or they couldn't go anywhere. It just said that the situation was so dire in society that if they didn't have that kind of backing and support, they might never have been able to write the novel, let alone get it published. So that makes a it makes a real difference. All right, so we're going to start off on that. Now I wanted to go further than the year uh, two thousand and three hundred uh, before Christ, uh, but because you know the the Bible authors of Ruth and Judith were you know are, are prominent in thousands of years even before that. But since their writing, which which is ultimately either religious script or or a history or a combination of both. Uh, I'm not really counting that because I'm really considering this more uh, about those that were doing creative writing, uh, fiction and uh, poetry, uh, uh, novels, things like that. I mean, there's a few here that have done some nonfiction, but, you know, I'm not going to count the Bible ones. It just it doesn't really ring right on the, on the show. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I respect them. And I'm glad they were out there. But uh, we'll go on to somebody who was directly creative and we'll go from there. Okay. Now, the first one is. Uh, a Sumerian, this is from ancient Sumeria, okay, Ejiduana, all right, she was, uh, I, uh, you know, be surprised from what I just, you know, talked about before, she was a priestess of the uh, of the god Inna, 
this is during the Old Babylonian period, okay? She wrote in cuneiform, which is very creatively interesting because that's when they were using a like a shape for an alphabet and press it in against a clay, and then when it, it dried, it, they had a tablet that they would give you. So she wrote in that, and she wrote in poetry. She wrote some hymns. She wrote a number of things as a, a priestess of her religion. She was also a, a, a warrior in, in the military as well. And she was a princess of of that of that particular kingdom uh, two thousand three hundred years ago, before Christ. So we're talking about somebody that is uh, almost four thousand years ago in, in the realm of the Bible, but you know, still a little bit uh, you know after that. Okay, so she wrote a lot of works uh, regarding um, the divine muse about the goddess of love. She, uh, she actually uh, wrote about some things about how you can write, a little bit of sort of like the basic composition of writing. So if you're interested in that, she, uh, she was very fascinated with astronomy. And she had some descriptions of stellar measurements and movements that were considered some of the most earliest of scientific observations. She even had a crater on Mercury named after her in the year 2015. So as they you know, they discovered more of her work. So it was a pretty fascinating uh, young lady. We don't know too much more beyond that about her, but those are the things we do know. And uh, there's a writer right there, a poet. Edujuana. Hopefully I'm saying that right. But, you know, it's in Sumerian, a language that we don't have any longer. So give me a break here. <laughs> All right. Now, the next two writers, okay, there were uh, two writers uh, that became famous by using a male name. And like I told you, you'll find both of these people to be, again, deeply embedded into the higher upper class of their society. They knew all kinds of famous people. Their parents were often writers, doctors, philosophers, real estate people, just rich people, okay? Uh, but they both felt that it was necessary for them to do this, okay? Uh, one had a little bit more of a different need uh, to understand uh, why they want to change the name than the other. And we'll talk about that. Uh, the first one is uh, George Sand. A lot of people didn't know that. George Sand was a woman, a French woman of the Romantic era. Her name, uh, you, you know, besides that her actual given birth name was Amatine Dupin. So there you go. All right. She was well-read. In fact, they said George Sand was more well-read than Hugo and Balzac. And those are some of the, the people, uh, the male writers of her time in France that they admired her a lot, and they secretly knew that was a woman as well. And they were, of course, huge in their own right. And uh, it was great for them to have um, you know, real respect artistically without being, uh, without being jerks about it. Okay? During the Bonaparte administration, of which she had some kind of political role in, she worked to get pardons and reduce sentences for her friends. Uh, George Shand was an avowed socialist back then, so um, she wasn't exactly um, <laughs> uh, on, on the Bonaparte side of things, but he left her alone, probably from family connections. All right. Um, she, was, uh, she wrote a number of novels, uh, a couple of them, one called Indiana, another one called uh, Murprat. She was really famous for the... Uh, for the novel uh, Consuelo. Okay? Now, I thought it was very interesting that uh, on her death, uh, Hugo, Victor Hugo, had said, as sort of a, a memorial to her, George Sand was an idea. She has quite an astounding place in our age. Others are great men. She was a great woman. 
So, I mean, and a lot of people really admired her and, and praised her. Uh, I mentioned already Hugo and Balzac, uh, Flaubert was also one, uh, and Dostoevsky was as well. Uh, apparently, she only had one real detractor, which was Baudelaire, which is unusual as heck, because he was always somebody that wanted to hang with the rebel and talk about rebel ideas. But for some reason, he didn't really like her or her politics, and he denounced her as, as being a charlatan, and he had other words for her that would not be really welcome on the show. But you can imagine. Um, I'm really surprised by him, but hey, we're talking about writers here, and they can be uh, unusual at times. Now, the next one, uh, this one would be in the late 1860s, uh, George Eliot, known by, and she's an English writer, and she was a, during the Victorian era, uh, Mary Ann Evans, that was her given name. Uh, she's quite famous for Silas Marner, if anyone ever remembered that. I remember when I was going to school, that was required reading. And I always thought it was an interesting story. And especially when they tell you later on, there was a woman that wrote it. So you're always interested by that, okay? Uh, and she was also famous for Middlemarch. Now, unlike George Sands, who honestly thought that by having a male name, uh, she would be recognized better and, and have less heat and less difficulty. Uh, Mary Ann Evans, or George Eliot, mostly took the male name on because she was trying to avoid the scandal. She had a, a long-term relationship with a married man by the name of George Henry Lowe's. Uh, she was a very interesting woman in the sense that uh, not only did she write these major novels uh, in the Victorian era, but also she was uh, uh, quite fluent in, in German and translated uh, Spinoza's Ethics uh, from the German into the English. Uh, interesting enough, and this is what sometimes uh, I think we we often have women in the wrong. I think in the wrong role sometimes we we put them more than anybody else on a pedestal. And I mean, men can do that a lot. It's one of the things they had complained about in the past. Stop treating me like a child. Stop treating me like a holy ghost. Stop treating me like a like a swan. Just just let me be me, which wasn't an easy thing because that's what gentlemen was supposed to do. Uh, she had the most unusual um, situation that I don't know why or how, but apparently everybody in the whole world, including people in Indonesia or something, knew that she was cheating on her husband, except for her husband. Before he died, he actually published a bio saying how wonderful she was. Incredible, huh? He dies and people are like, wow, what a fool that guy was. He never realized that she was cheating on him. Okay? And, uh, in 1994, Harold Bloom placed Eliot among the most important Western writers of our time. So she really, uh, really was noticed and, and, and recommended, but she definitely had one hell of a, a scandalous life. But it's nothing compared to some of the other writers we'll talk about that have actually uh, gone even further than that. I know, I'm, I'm amazed that you can go further than that, but you can and you'll you'll hear about that shortly. All right, let's go on to the next one. Another very interesting writer, okay? Mary Shelley. All right, she uh, became famous for Frankenstein. Uh, both her parents, wealthy philosophers, incredibly enough. So, she, another person, young, meets uh, with uh, uh, Percy Shelley, who's a good friend of her father's. They wanted to have an affair. Well, he was still married. And, they, and, they, and they, they, they got out of the area for a while and just go travel for a while, okay? She got the idea 
about Frankenstein from muscles that can move, which used to be called galvanism, using electricity or electrical shock. She thought maybe that could be a, you know, a possible way to bring people back from the dead. I tell you one thing: you got to be really creative to think that alone. But I don't care if you're a woman or a man, because you know, I see a muscle move, electricity shock. I'm not thinking about dead people coming from life with bolts in their neck and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't occur to me, okay? But it occurs to something like that is, for some reason, sort of, I, I, I'm not saying that she admired death or she had some death wish or she was some death lover or something like that, but she seemed to be curious about this. And, and it's ironic later on because she only was able to, to marry Percy once his wife who discovered the affair committed suicide. And then after that, two of the three children she had both died at, at childbirth. Okay, so um, she uh, she had some, some serious death going on. So it's ironic she wrote this uh, story about people coming back from, from the dead before all this dead stuff happened to her. So it's just uh, one of those weird omens, I guess. Um, Mary Shelley, unlike the other two women we just talked about before, now, I don't know anything about the Sumerian woman's education, but it's not hard to guess that if from a royal family, they, they gave her some kind of education, because how could she write then and do cuneiform if she didn't have that? So I'm assuming that she did. Then uh, both uh, George Sand and George Eliot did have advanced degrees. Mary Shelley, ironically, never went to college. She was just so enamored with writing. She had enormous access to her father's extensive library. His library was better than some of the universities in the area, believe it or not. And she was just naturally talented. And, of course, she's hanging around one of the great poets of her time. So that's what she was able to do, right? One of the, what's once considered one of the greatest novels ever written, never went to college. I know, pretty amazing, huh? Later on... Um, Percy himself, he goes on a boating trip and, and, and drowns in an accident five years after she writes Frankenstein. So this about everybody except for one of her children lived. Everybody else was dead. So she had an unusual life afterwards. But uh, she had enough respectability in terms of the uh, the literary world and the marketplace and everything. And, of course, whatever money left her, her parents left her, that she was able to continue on to have a, you know, a decent life. But that really remained one of her most important books. She wrote a few others, but... Then nothing can compare to what Frankenstein uh, did for her uh, reputation and, and to this day. That's it. Sometimes all you got to do is write that one big classic and you're good to go. <laughs> no, pretty amazing. All right. Next one over here. Now, don't forget the uh, nationalities here. The, the first one's from ancient Sumeria. Okay. Uh, next one's from France, George Sand, and then England from George Eliot. Uh, next one, of course, also from England, Mary Shelley. And then we're going over to Russia with Anna Akhtamatova, one of the few female poets I read when I was younger from the English translations of her work. And always fascinated by her. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to sound like a, a stereotypical weirdo over here. But I never found her to be the girly kind of poet. She always seemed to be, to me, very strong and masculine type. Always wrote about more somber, serious subjects. I don't know. I, I just like any other boy. I think serious stuff. You don't think about a girl writing that, but then you find out reading her. Oh wow, I'm wrong. They could write that way too. So there you go. Sometimes that's the only way you're going to learn about uh, certain stereotypes. You you might have been impressed on or dumb if when you experience those people and that material, and you realize you know that was dumb. What am I talking about here? 
All right. So Anna Akbatova, uh, born 1889, died uh, when I was born in 1965, okay? She was on the shortlist in 1965 for the Nobel Prize. And I think she was on the shortlist uh, again for that a year or two later, but she never won it. Um, she was uh, someone that liked to condemn Stalinism. She really didn't really believe in that kind of government and the communism that was going on. And for some stubborn reason, she never wanted to leave her homeland, even though everybody left. She just thought she could uh, document it better from inside. She wanted to stay where she was at. And she risked imprisonment and, and even death. Many people around her went to jail or were killed, including her husband and, and one of her sons. So it wasn't an unusual thing for her. Uh, she, I don't know, it's hard to explain the kind of, <laughs> really is, the kind of relationship she had with the people that read her, including communists, who... I don't know why they didn't want to put her in jail, even though they knew that she was against them. They called her the half harlot, the half nun. They loved the kind of writing she did, and uh, they still wanted to call her bad names, but at the same point, they just, I don't know, it's almost like they couldn't feel like they could put her in jail without the public just raging up against them or something. Unusual. But they never touched her. They didn't like her, but they didn't touch her. They never stopped her from publishing or writing or anything else. That's unusual. I'm one of the few people. She had a, 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 an unusual association with, with, with call, something called the Acmalist Group. They, uh, they really stressed craft over um, and simplicity over symbolism, and, and they really liked extensionalism. Uh, she's one of the few females that are really involved in the extensionalist movement. I mean, because you think about that movement, you're thinking about uh, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, you're thinking about um, uh, Albert Camus. Uh, you don't really think to me females. Well, don't forget her, Anna Akhmatova, definitely existentialist here. Okay, she was also a translator, uh, and she translated a lot of works: uh, French, English, Italian, Armenian, and Korean. Those are the languages she's able to creatively translate. So she had one hell of a, a gift to do that. And I'll read you a little bit of something she wrote. It it, it kind of gives you an idea, okay, of. Why even the communists didn't want to mess with her? There was something deeply spiritual about her, even though she wasn't religious by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, Anna Akhmatova had like a hundred thousand different boyfriends. I'm serious. You, you read anything about her life? It's like every other block there's another guy. The, the trumpet player that wrote music about her and her poems, the painter who wrote, painted stuff about her, this writer, that person, this and that, whether she was married or not, there was men everywhere. She must have had one hell of an interesting personality. I know she was definitely talented as a writer, but uh, you know, if it's one of those people like Edgar Allan Poe, you see her picture and you're like, "All right, I don't get it." Sorry, Anna, I don't get it. But apparently, uh, men liked her, so and she liked men. There's no doubt about that. But if you listen to this poem, it's it, it almost like arrests you and it lets you know about why maybe this, some of the comments just didn't want to mess with her. I mean, she was just that powerful. From, the, from the, the return. The souls of all my dears have flown to the stars. Thank God there's no one left for me to lose. That's very poignant stuff. She even mentioned God in there, and they still didn't put her in jail. It's unusual, I'll tell you that. But hey, when you're dealing with artists, and you're dealing with writers, and you're dealing with, in some cases, complicated women, and then, of course, you're dealing with crazy communists, I don't know which to make head or tails on, on what some of these motivations of all these people are, other than the fact that 
We're human, and as you can tell, we make some strange decisions. All right. Now, this next one, most interesting, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, okay? Uh, also an existentialist, existentialist, not too many females, I can She's more famous for anything else, uh, uh, even though there's other work from her. From 1949, it's the second sex, okay? It's like a biography of women's oppression and and, and like an early uh, f feminist formatic type work, okay? It's quoted by many many feminists as a, a foundation for, uh, for modern uh, feminism. Ironically, uh, a woman who writes about all the things that women should stand up on, and in, in the end, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, even she said, uh, de Beauvoir, uh, my life is messy. You know, she uh, had an abusive relationship with a French philosopher, a very long one, by the way, like 50 years. Even as she's going with other men, she still has a relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre, so uh, another ex existentialist. Uh, it's not a physical abusive relationship, but I would definitely say it would be uh, in the emotional slash psychological one. That's for sure. She won a big award for the Mandarins, and she had a long relationship with a uh, an American writer by the, uh, by the name of Nelson Algren. He gave, he became very angry with her and uh, stopped seeing her once he found out that he was one of the characters in that novel. When she died, uh, she put it in her will. And they put the silver ring on her finger, and she died uh, and being buried with that silver ring. It was the ring he gave her. So apparently she had some kind of feeling for him, even upon her death, because that's what she wanted, and that's what she got, the gift of his silver ring. Um, De Beauvoir goes a little bit further than most women, unlike Anna, who only liked men. Well, uh, Simone liked men and women. She was bisexual, so she had numerous relationships with women, I guess when there wasn't a guy around, there was a girl around. And I'm not even trying to make a joke. That's just literally how this is working out. One of the more famous ones was uh, 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 a writer by the name of Bianca Lamberlin, um, who, if I, ironically, once they stopped having an affair with each other, she went on to have an affair with John Paul Sartre, who also had a lot of affairs on top of also seeing Simone. So, um, I know. You, you need like a like a, a list over here to figure out who's sleeping with who on what day and what week. But um, there's a lot of sleeping going on here, that's for sure. Okay? Uh, she got herself into a bit of a scandal uh, as a teacher. It was another way for her to make a living, which is not unusual. Uh, they revoked her license to teach in France, the whole country of France, okay? Because she was sleeping with a, 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 a student who was 17. She had an affair with a, with a girl who was 17. The parents got very upset when they found out. They protested. The school released her. She got a lawyer. And the lawyer said, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. This is France. And the French, the French have sexual consent at the age of 15. So since this girl was 17 and gave French with sexual consent, yeah, you can get mad, but you can't fire her. So they had to give her a job back. So she got her job back on its technicality as she's sleeping with uh, uh, girls who are not even adults yet. Uh, I can't even tell you anything about the judgment on that because I I agree with legally at least that I mean you didn't rape anybody at least you did have consent but it is kind of strange and definitely a little onto it but you know you, don't, you shouldn't expect anything better from a woman than from a man who's creative these are the same things that are going to happen. We've had men writers that have done a lot worse than this. That's for sure. <laughs> that's the truth. So I'm definitely not going to be her judge about that. But um, wow. I mean, I could probably continue on if I wanted to. 
Um, a deeply interesting woman, but also a deeply, I feel, unhappy woman. Sort of like Anna Akhtatova in a way. Some, a certain strain of unhappiness that, that ran through her. Now, this next, this next writer I, it's one of the most interesting ones that I found. Maybe I, I have a bit of a connection with her because she's like somebody who's still living in my, you know, my lifetime. Everybody else I just read to you have been dead for like a million years. All right, but um, this one is still around, okay? Uh, from Chile. Um, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Simone de Beauvoir was from France, okay? Uh, Isabel Allende was from Chile, okay? Um, she was very famous for the House of the, of the Spirits and City of the Beasts, both of the examples of magical realism, one of the few female writers that adopted that style of writing. It was mostly a Spanish male style until she came along. Okay, uh, she became um, quite well known uh, from those novels. Uh, she uh, was born into a strong political family. Her father was the cousin of Salvador Lundi, the president of Chile. Okay, her first job was to translate S Spanish. Romance novels into and excuse me, English romance novels into Spanish. They fired her when she made some unauthorized changes to the female characters, making them more intelligent than they were originally written. Which is <laughs> strange irony at that. That's what's for. Um, her cousin uh, Salvador Allende, he wound up getting overthrown by the military dictator Augusto Pinochet. So she had to run for her life with her family before they rounded up and killed her, and they wound up uh, exiling themselves to Venezuela. That's where she wrote all her novels, including House of the Spirits. She uh, became uh, a journalist over there and had an interview column. All right, so she was able to get a hold of a lot of writers that were famous, including uh, Pablo Neruda, which is amazing. Everybody seems to have a connection with that guy. Uh, that was the uh, the famous um, uh, Chilean poet uh, that winds up winning the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, a diplomat and a communist, all right? He, he had an interview with her, and one of the things he remarked is, you have way too much intelligence to be a journalist. You ought to be uh, a, a creative writer. I don't think he was trying to, like, put down one profession over another. I think he was just making a statement about, you know, that she really wasn't going to get her full creative potential being a journalist. And she wound up taking that advice, and that's how she uh, came about writing The House of the Spirits, a big successful uh, novel. Uh, Isabel Allende uh, actually sold more books and was more well-read as a Spanish writer than anybody during her lifetime, including the men. So she really had a historic achievement by doing that. Very, very interesting. Uh, I, I really like that a lot. Now, there are a number of women that I really did some work on here on, on the show's history, okay? We did one on Ursula Le Guin, the female science fiction writer. Uh, we did an entire show on Shirley Jackson, a member famous for House on the Haunted Hill and, uh, and the, the Lottery. Uh, we did one on uh, Octavia Butler, the, uh, the, the black female science fiction writer, whole show on her. And next month we're doing one on Maya Angelou, because I would have had her on this show. If, uh, if we wasn't doing a show on her for next month. So, just want to remind you about that. We try to keep up on as much as we can to, to make the show balanced and, and, and relevant. And the only reason I do it is because I have to think that it's artistically necessary. I don't, and if you haven't figured this out already, I don't go one political way or the other because I'm really impressed with someone trying to make me feel bad. I'm not at all. 
I don't I don't have a bucket list and I don't really care about what you think is politically important or not. Don't really care. I do what I think is best because that's what's necessary for the show. You can't do the show like this if you're not interested in what you're talking about. If you're just doing it because you're trying to make somebody happy, work in the post office or something. Don't don't do this kind of job, right? So that's why we do that because it's always been important. I didn't need anybody to remind me about that. But I thought it was quite interesting uh, to have the female gender in writing as a show because, as you can tell, those women and continually on the women of today that write, they they leave they lead just as complicated lives. In fact, in many ways, the female writer probably lives an even more difficult and complicated life than men because. I don't have to spend a lot of time to make myself look good for somebody. I, I don't have to drop a baby out of my butt or anything because I can't do that. Thank God. Don't want anything coming out of my butt that big anyway. Okay. Uh, I certainly don't have to do all this hair, all this makeup, all these dresses, all that. Uh, I'm glad I don't have to do any of that. that. Like being women it is a lot of work, in my opinion. So imagine doing all of that and then still have to do all the stuff as writers and then all the stuff the world has to throw at you, what they expect of you. I, I, Alunde had a very interesting comment. She said that in a weird way, uh, the death of her cousin, the president of Chile, and her going to Venezuela was probably the only way she was ever going to become the creative writer she would have been. Because she lived while she was in Chile under the expectations as a wife and as a daughter and as a member of politically... She pretty much was living that image. and She didn't want to speak her mind, even though she... She wrote her mind, and she she said she never knew if she would have broke out of that until she left, and then she just said, no, all bets are off on this. So, how ironic how something that horrible could bring about something uh, that's quite creative and, and, and certainly uh, uh, beautiful in the in the end of that. So, that's, that's an interesting take on things. It really is. So, I don't think... From my experience with women, if we want to add that into this, that you know, women are the, the Madonna, or women are the whore, or all these these crazy extremes that we put on. No, they're not. I, I haven't met any woman that was, um, I guess you could say, a, a, a virgin. I don't mean sexually. I mean just a virgin of life. They're not. Women tend to mature earlier than boys do, so they tend to really see a lot about the world, about relationships, about the the. Uh, the complexity and the intelligence of emotion that men do. They really have a, a greater grasp on the world. So in many ways, they're, they're smarter than men are, you know, and that's why we really need to listen to more what they have to say and, and check out more what they have to write, see of the things that we're missing in the world that we're just not getting because we're guys. And sometimes as guys, we can be blind to certain things. Women sometimes are just not, which is great. That kind of gives us another set of eyes out there. And that's why they should be our partners and creativity and not consider anything else. I still know guy writers that are just not comfortable about women writers. Think that all they have to say is, you know, boulder dash or something. But it's not true. And uh, I, I wouldn't call these guys sexists or all these other silly words they use these days. I would just, I would just say that they're guys that, you know, they, they need to get out of the house a little bit more. That's all. You know, more than just getting some Chinese food, okay? Meet a couple, please. It will help you a lot <laughs> to see uh, the wider view of things. But I really I really enjoyed the the, the show, uh, The Female Gender in Writing. I hope to kind of give you a little grasp on how some of the things that can be seen and some of the things that, that are done by women, how much they, they value, 
how much uh, they they matter how they're in definitely the the halls of, of greatness as well as uh male writers are and how we need to go check those some of those out if some of them some of you are listening right now and say damn i haven't read that one well go check it out you know you know you know i, I find it ironic uh that so many people know about Frankenstein from all the different movies and shows that came out. And you, you'll find a fraction of those people haven't even read the novel Frankenstein. Go grab it and read it. You can probably catch it free on the internet. Check it out. It's very different. It's very interesting. And guess what? It's not exactly like the movies make it out to be. And don't forget, because remember, since I began this show... Uh, I always, I'm always annoyed by people who think Frankenstein was the monster. I guess he was metaphorically, if you want to think about it. But Frankenstein was the doctor, Doctor Frankenstein, and not the creature that he brought back to life. Okay, that was a pitiful thing that was innocent of anything that it was accused of, and unfortunately, uh, you know, paid a price for that. But Doctor Frankenstein, that's the one that was a bad one, and that one, I tell you that. All right, folks. Until next time. Uh, don't forget, we do have some interesting shows uh, coming up over here. I'll give you a couple for November, and then I'll even talk about a couple that we have coming up for December, okay? The next show we're going to do is another classic spotlight, this one with John Ashbury. Looking forward to that. Always love that guy. Then we're going to have a unique interview with Bob Fire, uh, lit, and we're going to have the editors uh, Leanne Denman and Rich uh, Boucher on, and they're going to talk about their new magazine, and uh, about being a, a writer and, and also about being an editor, some of the things they're looking for. So that'll be fun. We're doing the show uh, about uh, discussing on self. It's going to be called The Mirror and the Window. You know, about selfishness, narcissism. What do we do? What line do we draw? All that. We'll have an international mailbag. I got more people from around the world giving me emails. So that'll be fun. And then coming up in December over here, we got some, uh, we got some brand new, uh, different type shows that, uh, um, I'm definitely looking forward to, and, and hopefully you are as well. In the beginning of December, we got writing during political imprisonment, so that'll be fun. Uh, Martin Luther King and Vakal Havel and a number of writers that were imprisoned and some of the writings they came out with. We have a, another classic spotlight. This one will be on Gene Roddenberry. Uh, that was the, uh, the uh, author of Star Trek, so that'll be very interesting. We're doing uh, three uh, writing uh, series uh, under the... Uh, the uh, Geminal Joust, it's called, and uh, it'll be writing as priority, writing as passion, and writing as uh, pledge. And then we're going to be doing uh, a show about the poetic forms, and then the last classic spotlight for the uh, for the year. And the last show of the year will be on Maya Angelou. So it's going to be very, very interesting, and I'm looking forward to it all. All right, folks, stay safe until next time. God bless. Strength to be human. Female gender in writing. Nay, nay. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.